Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. They will never agree to a pipeline. We recognize uh, the important democratic right, and we will always defend it, uh, of peaceful protest. But we're also a country of the rule of law. Yeah, many goods were a bit nervous about uh, getting them in the next few weeks. It's up to the provinces to make those injunctions uh, effective by taking action. Increasingly, the indigenous fight for justice is overlapping with environmentalism. It is very important for all people in Canada to be able to go about their rightful and legitimate business. It's Sunday, February 16th. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block. The protests supporting the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs are threatening economic paralysis from coast to coast to coast, with rail lines blockaded, ministers' offices occupied, and traffic halted with no end in sight. Some Indigenous Canadians are accusing the Trudeau government of being insincere in their commitment to reconciliation, while many other Canadians are demanding the government takes action to end the blockade. Indigenous Services Minister Mark Miller met with the Mohawk Nation yesterday, and he joins me now. Thank you for joining us this morning. Hi, Mercedes. You had a chance to sit down with the Mohawk chiefs. Can you tell me what the moderate progress was you achieved in that meeting? Because that's how you've described it. Well, first, Mercedes, what's become obvious in this situation is we've gone from zero to rhetoric and vitriol without even actually talking to the people um, that, are, that are, are standing out uh, on rail lines, spending days on end. Um, fighting in support for the Wet'suwet'en people. Uh, and so yesterday was an opportunity to stand there uh, in all honesty and peace, um, looking for a dialogue and a discussion with uh, people that haven't been heard, in some cases, for, uh, for centuries. So um, I've been told not to go there. I've been told I shouldn't engage. Um, but as a nation, uh, we need to think of who we are and what we stand for. And for me, that means engaging peacefully with people that may not share the same opinion as us view uh, and talk openly and honestly. They were very suspicious of me going in there. Uh, they thought it was perhaps a trick. It, it wasn't. Um, I went in there knowing that uh, that mistakes might be made, uh, things said, but this was an opportunity to show a little bit of trust, talk to people um, who were very fearful standing out there feeling uh, targeted by the entire country. So I went in and we had a discussion for about eight or nine hours. We ate, we talked, we laughed. There was a, there was a lot of tears that were shed. And we talked about some of the challenges. Um, what was clear at the end of the meeting was there was a bit of confidence that was built um, and um, that um, there are a number of actions I needed to go back and talk to the Prime Minister about, what, which I did. What are some of those actions? Um, one, keeping the dialogue open and ensuring that this situation remains peaceful and respectful. Um, it hasn't felt respectful up to now. Uh, Yesterday was an effort to put in a bit of respect, uh, but clearly there's some effort to do in British Columbia on our part and to get out there and continue that dialogue with hereditary chiefs, um, regardless of their views, uh, and to hope that we can come to some uh, peaceful solution. And that's what we got to do. Uh, I came out of that meeting thinking, uh, who are we as a country? Do we repeat the errors of the past? Um, 30 years ago, um, police went in, um, guns blazing in Oka, and someone died. So that shouldn't be lost on anyone that's telling us to go in there and impose law and order. Um, these situations have all started with injunctions and court orders. Um, and you can take whatever view you want on um, 
on that particular, uh, those particular injunctions that are in force. Um, but we also have to look at ourselves as Canadians and say, do we use every peaceful method to resolve this situation? And that's the path that I prefer. Uh, it's frustrating to many. I've received many emails, calls, discussions about um, how people are suffering, the economy is suffering, there are sh fuel shortages that are imminent, um, and that weighs heavily on my mind. Um, but I also say to myself, uh, these issues are not going away anywhere soon unless we do this the right way. And yesterday was a, was a small attempt to do so, um, but I've undertaken to open that dialogue. I briefed the Prime Minister both before and after the meeting, and um, this is something that is fluid and is moving on an hourly basis, but we remain committed and engaged to resolve this in a peaceful way. There are Canadians who say, look, they want reconciliation, that's important, but when you're talking about critical fuel shortages for hospitals, they want the government to take action. Is there a tipping point where the dialogue ends and those injunctions are enforced? Well, I don't have the luxury to deal with ifs. I'm, uh, I'm in a present situation that is both volatile uh, and compelling to all Canadians, and my job as a leader is the safety and security of everyone. Um, and there are people that are feeling vulnerable. There are uh, women and children, uh, men that are standing out protesting. Uh, their safety is of utmost importance to me. At the same time, um, as a lawyer, someone that practiced law, um, the rule of law is also very important. It is critical. It's defined my career. Uh, I also served in the armed forces, uh, and I know when things go wrong, and I know what we've done as a nation in the past, um, and I think we can do things better and move forward. So uh, this won't be easy. The discussions need to take place. They need to be uh, open, honest, um, with no duplicity, um, and we need to come to some uh, resolution that, that, that is peaceful, and uh, that is, uh, that's the advice I've, I've given to the Prime Minister, along with a number of other recommendations that I'm not at liberty to discuss, and I will, uh, I will discuss them when I have the opportunity to. But um, what is clear is that this is a, a, a situation that's moving hour by hour. Um, we, can, we remain committed uh, to deploy Minister Bennett to go out to BC and continue the discussions with hereditary leadership and other leadership and ensure that we can come uh, to one mind as to something that is very compelling to us as Canadians. When it comes to rule of law, there are some Canadians who are saying, why is it not being enforced? And if you talk to some Indigenous groups, they'll say, sovereignty means we are not subject to Canadian law. How do you deal with that? Does that mean that there are some parts of Canada that are subject to Canadian law, courts, police, and others that aren't? Well, I want to highlight the fact that uh, proper use of police discretion in de-escalation is an highly important part in these volatile situations. We know uh, our lessons from the past that, that people can get hurt. It sounds uh, and to in me some like case, you're very concerned about case, violence here. Absolutely. Uh, we all should be concerned. Uh, these, are, these are peaceful people who want a peaceful resolution, and we can't have peaceful resolutions without, without dialogue. Uh, people talk about the rule of law, um, but those, the Indigenous people I spoke to yesterday and across the country have too often said that that same rule of law has been used to perpetrate historical injustices. Uh, whether you agree with that or not, that is their point of view, and we need to hear it and address it. We have taken too long to address this, and we know our lessons In, from the past, whether we talk about Ipawash or, or Oka. Um, these are challenges that we uh, can do better at, at addressing in a more expedient fashion. And I say to Canadians, uh, let's learn from our uh, lessons in the past. Do we live in fear and ignorance, which is probably our biggest challenge, or do we entertain dialogue with those who uh, don't necessarily agree with us? And that's, um, I believe, as Canadians, and uh, we can be shining examples to ourselves, but also to the world, as to how we engage in dialogue. And I, I, I believe there's a way forward 
um, and I remain resolutely committed to it. What about the Indigenous Canadians who, in the case of the Coastal Gas Link uh, LNG line, are in the majority who say, we want this pipeline? Again, those voices can't be discarded. Um, Non-Indigenous Canadians have different points of view. We can't assume that every uh, Indigenous person has the exact same point of view. I think I that's guess, a preconception that, that we be, often have. Does it have um, to be unanimous consent then? I guess that's what I'm, I'm wondering. If you have the majority of Indigenous nations on that line saying, yes, we want it to go ahead, and one saying no, or certain people on one saying no, does consent mean veto? There are two in directly uh, interrelated issues in here, and that is uh, some people with a view on the coastal gas link itself, um, and there are people with views on... Uh, on hereditary title and, and, and title to land. Um, those issues are sometimes distinct and sometimes interrelated. I often feel that they've gotten confused. Um, but you can't get through that cloud of confusion and misinformation until you actually sit down and you talk to people. Uh, the understanding that I have of what Swinton hereditary leadership is there is a, there's a consensus-based model that sometimes has escaped us as Canadians. Uh, I know that to be the case. Uh, in the traditional leadership that I've seen in okay. Mohawk communities, that consensus base lets them come out of one mind, even though that they have disputes internally. I'm um, sorry to jump in there, Minister, but we're out of time, so I fine. do have to cut you off. My apologies, but thank you so much for joining us thank today. Thank you, Mercedes. Protests across the country have shut down passenger and freight lines, blockading rail in the B.C. legislature, and hit the economy hard, as Indigenous protesters and those sympathetic to their cause have blockaded access in support of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, who oppose an LNG pipeline crossing their traditional territory. It's all led to simmering tensions and questions about who's in charge, who speaks for the Wet'suwet'en, and what exactly is legal. Former Attorney General and former Regional Chief of the B.C. Assembly of First Nations, Jody Wilson-Raybould, joins me now from Vancouver. Thanks for coming on the show, Jody. No, oh, thanks for having me. You were the Attorney General, and at that time, you were adamant about the importance of the independence of the judiciary and the rule of law. In this particular case, we seem to be seeing the rule of law coming into conflict with the need for reconciliation. How do you balance those two things? Well, I, I mean, as you said, uh, I was the Attorney General. I believe fundamentally in the importance of the rule of law and upholding the rule of law. It is our responsibility to do so as a country. Um, but when it comes to Indigenous peoples um, historically in this country uh, who have been discriminated against, who have a long shadow of a colonial legacy and a history of the rule of, no of law not being upheld, um, it's worth discussion. It's worth understanding that legacy of colonialism and understanding that the law has not been fairly applied uh, it, when it comes to Indigenous peoples. And that speaks to the fundamental need for reconciliation, for understanding. And that is going to require all of us as a country to ensure that uh, the rule of law is upheld and that the issues of Indigenous reconciliation and nation rebuilding, self-determination are addressed in a fundamental and transformative way. Does that mean that you don't think the RCMP should have gone in to enforce the court injunction? 
No, that's that's not what I'm saying. I I mean I understand the the serious concerns um, that Canadians have across the country, the impact that blockades of railway lines has. And the RCMP will do its job and exercise its discretion as they they deem appropriate. But it is the responsibility not just of the RCMP but of political leaders. It's the responsibility of all of us. We got here to this place, and uh, leaders, elected leaders, need to do their jobs, and that is to lead. There's a lot of confusion among people about who speaks for the Wet'suwet'en, whether it is the elected chiefs or the hereditary chiefs. Can you give us some clarity on who is the le legitimate authority there and how to proceed? Sure. I mean, and and well, first of all, I'll start by saying I, I like that we're having this conversation. And this is essentially, in my mind, a conversation around governance and the inherent right of self-determination of self-government. Um, under the Constitution uh, right now, uh, who has authority is the historical collective, in the case of the Wet'suwet'en, the Wet'suwet'en people, um, who share a common language, culture, and traditions, and a, and a territory. It is up to them to determine and what happens on their territory. Where the confusion comes in, and this is what we're witnessing, of course, up in Wet'suwet'en territory, but across the country, is we have the imposition of a colonial statute called the Indian Act, which uh, uh, has uh, determined that uh, First Nations groups elect leaders. And that's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the elected leadership in the Wet'suwet'en territory, or that they may or may not speak for um, the Wet'suwet'en people, but so too um, do the hereditary chiefs. They represent the same people. And what's required and what has been asked for since um, as long as I can remember, and certainly back to the Royal Commission on, on Aboriginal Peoples, is that there needs to be uh, space created and mechanisms developed for Indigenous peoples to exercise their right of self-determination including self-government, to determine who speaks for the Wet'suwet'en. So a reconciliation of the hereditary system with the imposed elected system. Is there a risk that this becomes another OCA? Well, I, I mean, again, I don't think, and nobody wants that to happen. Um, but what this situations like this, um, nobody wants um, uh, lives to be at risk. Everybody wants to ensure that there is safety. But there are underlying issues that these that this situation brings to the surface. And this is the outstanding question of true reconciliation in this country. Um, and I'll say that you know, the Prime Minister on uh, two years ago, on February the 14th, gave what I believe to be an historic speech in the House of Commons, where he spoke about the necessary transformative change that needs to occur in this country through the development of a rights recognition and implementation framework, where as a government, um, they move beyond the denial of Indigenous rights and recognize that Indigenous peoples, as accorded by the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, have the right to be self-determining. That includes the right to self-government. And, and I will say this, and, and, and 
with this, um, you know, long gone are the days where Indigenous peoples are in small communities where they were placed at the end of a gravel road. The lack of governing institutions as determined by Indigenous peoples themselves um, are now um, and will continue to impact resource development projects, will continue to impact other jurisdictions as exercised by the federal government and provincial governments until, uh, as a country, we create the space, necessarily so, and I wrote a book about this, for Indigenous nations to rebuild within a stronger Canada. When we do that, um, when Indigenous peoples finally see themselves and can exercise their inherent rights of self-government, the country will be the better for it. We will have certainty around decision-making and who speaks for what territory, because we are embracing what I think is an extraordinary opportunity as a country. We're embracing our evolving system of cooperative federalism that includes Indigenous governments. Jody Wilson-Raybould, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Ottawa will soon have a new top diplomat from the United States, Donald Trump, nominating Dr. Aldona Vosch to come to Canada as the U.S. ambassador. Now, it may take months for Vosch to be confirmed by the Senate. Despite that, there have been lots of topics, from Huawei to USMCA in the relationship. And despite the absence of an ambassador, someone must carry on. So I sat down with Washington's top diplomat in Ottawa last week. Joining me now is U.S. Charge d'Affaires, Richard Mills. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Mills. It's a pleasure to be with you, Mercedes, and on West Block. Thank you. It seems like every time we talk to our American friends and colleagues, it's been about NAFTA 2.0, USMCA, Kuzma, depending on who you're talking to. A lot of people think that seems like a done deal, but I'm wondering if there's any bumps ahead on your radar or concerns the U.S. still has about implementation. Uh, it hasn't even been ratified here yet in Canada. You're right. We're not at the very end of the road yet. We are waiting for our Canadian friends to formally ratify Kuzma or USMCA, uh, and that'll be the end of the, the, the first part of the process. Uh, we're confident that that's going to happen. Uh, we believe there's widespread support for the USMCA agreement here in Canada among business, labor, government, all the stakeholders here. Uh, the next part will be implementation. That'll require hard work by the three governments. When it comes to Huawei, the U.S. has made their position very clear. And in fact, the National Security Advisor, when he visited Canada back in November in Halifax, um, made it no bones about it, that he did not want Canada to sign this, that he believed Canadians' data was at stake and that could affect the relationship with the United States. What would that look like? Well, you're right. This is a very important issue for the U.S. government and for our relationship with Canada. It's, of course, it's a Canadian decision to make about who they're going to let into their 5G network and their 5G infrastructure. We've been very clear, quite honestly, that to let an untrusted vendor and supplier like Huawei into your system for us raises very serious security, intellectual property, even human rights concerns. And we've shared those views with our Canadian friends. Does that mean potentially intelligence restriction? Because Canada relies on a lot of American intelligence. It does. We rely on, on some aspects of Canadian intelligence. It's a very close relationship, uh, one of the closest we have in the world. That's why we care very much about what decision the Canadian government makes about who they allow into their 5G system, and Huawei in particular. Uh, as the National Security Advisor said, I can't say what, what the exact implications would be, 
But as I think he made clear, it would cause us to have to reassess and look at quality and the quantity of information we could share. When it comes to the larger relationship with China, Canada, of course, arrested Meng Wanzhou on a U.S. warrant. Um, any sign that that extradition request may be dropped by the U.S. government now that the Americans are moving ahead with a trade deal? Let me be clear that the Chinese action in arresting the two Michaels, um, their action against the, the Canadian citizen, Mr. Schallenberg, um, is completely unacceptable to the U.S. government. Uh, we have made it very clear that this is the kind of behavior that puts the Chinese Communist Party leadership, the Chinese government, in bad, really a bad space around the world. But let me be clear, the decision to request that Canada honor its treaty with us, its extradition treaty, and um, bring in Mrs. Meng uh, was based solely on law. This was not a trade decision. There was no political... Um, but the president has indicated that it might be used for political leverage. Do you think that that's problematic? I think... Again, this is a judicial process on our side. Um, I have seen no indication that we're in a position to bring in political or trade uh, issues into it. It needs to have the process finish out. We have great confidence in the British Columbian courts and the Canadian court system. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had asked the U.S. government, in particular President Trump, not to sign any kind of a trade deal until Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor were released. They are very much still in prison, and the U.S. has signed an initial trade deal with China. The American government is telling Canadians they're doing everything they can to get the two Michaels released, but does signing that trade deal send a very different message about their value to the American government or the efforts being made to free them? I don't think so. Let me be clear, the President, President Trump has raised these cases at the highest levels in China. Uh, we have been very strong and very public in our concern about these cases with the Chinese government. We remain in close coordination with the Canadian government on what steps we should take. I know everyone is concerned that actions not be taken that might result in harsher treatment for those held. When it comes to defense spending, the Trump administration, who you represent here in Ottawa, has been very clear and explicit that they want Canada to spend more. President Trump has said he wants all of the allies to be meeting 2% of GDP. Mm. Canada's nowhere close to that, and it doesn't seem to have a plan to get there anytime soon. You sent a demarche, which is unusual to the Canadian government, an official reprimand demanding Canada spend more on behalf of the administration. Why aren't you satisfied with Canada's defense spending in the United States? Well, first, I'm not going to comment about our kind of the diplomatic exchanges that we have with our good friends in the Canadian government. Uh, but yes, it's no secret that the United States, with all our allies, all 29 NATO allies and others in Asia, uh, we've raised the issue of a more fair burden sharing as we all work to preserve global security. Canada is not near that mark. Um, we were very pleased with... Um, some of the uh, defense spending that's occurred under the, this government, uh, including some effort to buy a new frigate, um, some new airplanes. But to be quite honest with you, Mercedes, they are not, Canadian government's not on course to meet 2% by 2024. In fact, they probably will reach a peak, our estimate around 1.4% 2024, and then decline rapidly. This is important because our common security requires common burden sharing. Okay.
Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mercedes. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us for the West Block. I'm Mercedes Stevenson. Have a great week.